All right, well, friends, again, it's a pleasure to be back here with you all. It's been a few months since I was here last, but um, I've continued to stay in touch with Patrick over the last few months and uh, been really excited to deliver the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, this morning, I'd like to go ahead and invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians 1. We'll be in verses 1 through 5 today. Uh, it's a very well-known passage. I'm sure many of you will recognize it almost immediately. <clears throat> but over the last uh, few weeks, as Patrick and I were talking about um, Honestly, just his, his uh, time for vacation and preparing in advance for his time away. Uh, you've been sensed on my, in my prayers. And uh, my prayer for us as we approach the word of God from 2 Corinthians 1 is that this passage will be of true and lasting comfort to each and every single one of you. For it is here in our passage this morning that we read of the God of all comfort. Again, a famous passage. The God of all comfort in whose name alone we have true healing hope. And so the title of our sermon this morning will be Healing Hope. And again, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 1. And I'm sure if you turn there, as you turn there, you'll probably recognize this passage again. Uh, we as believers often reference this same truth, that God is truly and indeed the God of all comfort. We think of this truth especially when we hear of a dear friend or family member who falls ill and is in need of a word of encouragement, something to lift their spirits, to be reminded that God is with them. The Holy Spirit, as believers, often reminds us of this same truth when we ourselves are met with turmoil and the various struggles within our own soul. He meets us through the word and assures us that he is indeed with us and knows us and yet longs to comfort us in the midst of our own afflictions. This passage, though, is so famous, even in our broader American culture, that we often will see this same phrase, the God of all comfort, being plastered on uh, wall decorations and paraphernalia over at the local TJ Maxx or Ross, wherever it is that you shop around here, maybe Walmart, etc. We find the same passage as well printed on Hallmark cards that we find over at the local store. But this is so much more here in this passage than simply a get well soon kind of message or a letter to us. See, the word of God is far more than just a proverbial pat on the back, as we have often made this verse and this passage out to be. It's more than just God who simply steps down into the midst of our troubles and just says something like, oh, it's okay, you're going to be all right, buddy, just bear with it a little longer. That's not at all the point of this passage. It's not about God stooping down into these things and just pretending as if all is all right. But rather, this passage has been given to us in love, because the Lord loves to speak profoundly into the very depths of our deepest distresses with the answer that only he himself can give as the true answer to all of our distresses. As Martin Luther once said, in quote, the sea of God's mercies shall swallow up all of our particular afflictions. And you and I as believers need to hear that on a near daily basis, do we not? See, it's when we learn to rest in the true and lasting comfort of God that he draws our souls out from underneath the weightiness of this world that we all face on a day-to-day -day basis and draws us to that higher throne in heaven, spiritually speaking, where Christ is seated in victory over every sin and every struggle of our own souls. And so this morning, my desire again is for us to see that this healing hope that comes to us only in the gospel of Jesus Christ is found at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, namely Jesus himself. So let's go ahead and now read from 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 1, the word of God. 
which is given to us here in love. The Word of God tells us the following. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and, here's our phrase, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Friends, this is the living and abiding word of God for we're faithful and true, and it's been given to us in love. So knowing these things, let's go ahead and come before God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort. And we ask, O oh God, that as we have read from your word, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our own hearts in this hour. That as we approach your word and seek to learn from your very uh, voice given to us in your holy, unchanging, abiding word. We pray, O oh God, that as we, as we listen to your words, that they would truly influence our souls, the decisions we make, that it would satiate our desires, O Lord. We thank you, O Father, that truly you are our all-sufficient one. And when we feel the lack, especially through the midst of trials and afflictions that we face, and I know speaking from personal experience, we all face these on a daily basis, Lord. We recognize that you yourself are the only one who can truly satisfy us by your love. And so we ask, O oh God, that as your word has been read and is now preached over us, that your Holy Spirit would do a work within our hearts to bind our hearts together with Christ, that we would know him and the power of his resurrection, and that we would come to find that the sufferings that we face as believers, we share with our risen Lord. It was gone before us so that we might share in his comfort too. And so we pray for your blessing upon this time. We pray for the blessing of this word that is preached here this morning. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, as we uh, explore this theme of healing hope, which comes to us by and through Jesus Christ and him alone, I want to focus our minds in this time upon two simple yet profound and life-changing promises that are found here in this short passage of ours. First, we'll find that our God unites us by his grace, which we'll see in the first two verses before us in the greeting section. And second, we'll see that our God consoles us by his love, which we'll see in verses three through five. So again, two promises. It'll be one of those rare two-point sermons this morning, a little shorter too as well. Our God unites us by his grace, and our God consoles us by his love. Now, many of you likely know the Apostle Paul uh, did a righteous one or even two letters to the church at Corinth, but actually four. Two of them were not inspired by God, so they don't, of course, appear here in Scripture before us. But we know that Paul wrote four letters in total, two under the inspiration of the Spirit and two probably in his own flesh in many ways. We know this from places like 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 and 2 Corinthians 2 verses 3 through 4. 
And so we know, implicitly speaking, that by the fact that he wrote so many letters to them, that this church here in Corinth and around the greater city of Corinth, think kind of modern-day D.C., the, the greater region though, of Achaia as well, these people throughout this area were very uh, heavily weighing on Paul and Timothy's hearts and mind in this time. See, this church situated there in the city of Corinth, this big metropolis there in that ancient world, were very much like children who don't obey their parents the first time that we give them a command. This church in Corinth needed a whole lot of correction and good teaching and love and direction and discipline and all the more correction, good teaching, love and discipline. But while the Lord had only inspired two of these letters that we have in Scripture before us, First and Second Corinthians, the fact is, Paul and Timothy wrote to this church in Corinth and the surrounding region of Achaia from a place of both apostolic but also very much pastoral authority. And they wrote to them without prejudice or pretense. They wrote to them from a real, genuine place of love. They wrote to them solely in response, though, circumstantially speaking, in response to a real felt need for the believers in Corinth and Achaia alike to do two main things in response to their writings. To first turn away from their sins of doubt, dishonor, gossip, and the heavy topic of sexual promiscuity, uh, promiscuity which we see in First and Second Corinthians alike, but to turn from those things and to turn rather to know and love the jealous, holy, sanctifying love which God has for each one of us as his children. Now, historically speaking, the people there at Corinth were addicted to, admittedly, the sexualized culture in which they lived. It wasn't all that unlike the world in which we ourselves live now here in modern day, or really postmodern day, America. See, several members in the Corinthian church over time had refused to heed the biblical instruction regarding Christian ethics. And they had in time um, just given up the teaching of the apostles and gone their own way. They refused to heed this biblical teaching, though, this teaching that God had sent them for their own good and their own recovery even from out of these places of bondage and sinfulness. And addictive behavior. Now, humanly speaking, it would have been so easy for both Paul and Timothy and the other apostles alike to just give up on this church, to consider them a lost cause at this point there within the godless city of Corinth. But God had compassion on them. And that, that's what I really want us to focus in on this morning. God's compassion in the midst of such a provocative and adulterous generation. See, by God's own hand, God had called these same people to which they wrote out from the cults of that day to himself. He had hand-delivered them from their false worship and the fornications that they used to make at the altars of Aphrodite to rather humble their lives and surrender before the living and the abiding word of Christ, the only message that saves. And so in coming to Christ, these once sinners, now turned saints, had been given visible signs and seals of God's great salvation in the sacraments and through the preached word. See, through his ministers like Paul and Timothy and others, God had washed them with the waters of baptism and given them real spiritual food and drink in the portrayal of the bread and the wine before their very eyes. 
these people who were so indeed broken had been justified by faith in Christ and not their own works. And yet one by one by one, they began to take advantage of divine grace. To bend the knee again to licentious lifestyles and to begin feasting once more upon the promiscuous sins of their own culture once more, rather than feasting upon the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. But praise God for his kindness that always leads us, wayward people, back to repentance. See, lest we today, even here at Old Providence, think that we ourselves are above this sort of wayward behavior that was there and so common there in the church at Corinth. But for the grace of God, we too, admittedly, each one of us, would fall for these same temptations that the Corinthians faced, wouldn't we? But the Bible repeatedly speaks of God's character, which draws us away from these sinful patterns and behaviors. We know from places like Psalm 103, verse 8, that the Lord is merciful and gracious toward us, so slow to anger, and yet abounding in steadfast love. And it was because of this abounding steadfast love, even for the chief of sinners, that Paul and Timothy could write to a very broken, unbridled church with the very mind of Christ there, with absolute confidence that grace and peace still belonged to them. Why? Because they belonged to God's grace and peace. They were his people. That's why we read of that in the introduction to this letter. That grace and peace is theirs through the Father and Jesus Christ himself. This was given to them by God the Father and secured once for all time by their Savior who gave himself for them. Friends, do we see ourselves even here at our church as those who are also loved by the same Savior, the one who gave himself for us? See, as you look around this sanctuary every Sunday morning, as you gather together, do you see your brother or sister in Christ across from the aisle from you as those who have been shown this same great grace and peace that was given to a very sinful people, even in the church of Corinth? Can you see past the present hurt and blind spots, the failures and even the hangups that we face here in our own community, as every church does and experiences? Can you ask God to give you his compassion and his loyal love to forgive your fellow Christian? Friend, here in this morning, are you harboring in any way resentment in your heart toward your fellow believer? Have the sins of others caused you to become jaded toward the body of Christ? If so, will you ask God with earnestness to forgive you of these things? And as you seek to forgive others their debts against you, would you seek to know his forgiveness all the more? See, the unity that God has especially created for us as people is only enjoyed when we begin to learn and actually truly live in the light of his grace and peace that have been showered upon each and every one of us as believers. But we often don't live that way. In our culture, we are told to live these fragmented lives of what is now being called radical individualism. This idea of doing whatever is right in your own eyes. This is the culture in which we live. 
See, in our postmodern culture, this idea of radical individualism, where the only God that we worship is the God of self, this has become our only creed to worship our own wants and desires rather than the God who has made us and enjoying good fellowship with his people. Everyone nowadays is being told to do what is right in their own eyes. And I see this even on my own street back home in downtown Lynchburg, where I serve. Even on my own street back home, all kinds of sexual perversions abound, things that were not too unlike this church that we read of here in Corinth. And not only that, but these perversions of God's truth and his love and goodness are all being celebrated, and especially the last month, had been celebrated underneath the banner of pride. One church that is literally just two blocks away from me has their creedal statement, their belief system, as it were, plastered all over their building, not on just one side on the front, but even on the side as you walk around. It's unescapable. As you walk by, you can't help but see it on both sides. Their creedal statement, which is written in the colors of the rainbow, these following statements, love is love, black lives matter, climate change is real, no human being is illegal, women's rights are human rights, and finally, all genders are whole, holy, and good. This is the false creed of today, is it not? We have all heard of this creed at this point. False gospels such as these. But the sad reality is, is that our culture has vandalized the most pure and good gifts that God has given us. Like love by name, or concern for the environment even, or individual liberties, or even the beauty of biblical uh, justice, and even ethnicity. And the culture has taken these things and scandalized them and even idolized them and bent the knee to those things. Friends, this is the world of sin in which you and I live. We are not oblivious to it. We see it so often. And yet God has called us out of this, much like the Corinthian church. See, the law of God, which is written on all of our hearts and given to us explicitly by God in his, holy, in his holy word, is presently in our own broader American culture, even here in Virginia, is being undermined before our very eyes through immoral legislation. But where sin and injustice abound, God's grace is yet still making inroads, is it not? We see it even here before our very eyes as God calls his church to gather and to worship him, calls us out of the world to worship him properly, to be a holy people for his own possession, zealous for good works. See, where the culture fails and where the state even refuses to govern, biblically speaking, in light of God's commandments, the church alone, we as the true church of Christ alone, will prove to be the hope of this earth as culture drifts off into oblivion. Friends, here at Old Providence, do you see yourselves as saints then? As a people that have been set apart from the culture for God's holy purpose in this world? Will you as individuals and as the local church prove to be both men and women who are united by nothing less than God's saving grace in Christ Jesus? Will you seek the peace that comes only from the Heavenly Father and His only begotten Son? Will you openly learn all the more to confess your sins to one another and to seek, without reservation, the beauty of a clean and pure conscience and the holy communion that is to be had 
as we forgive one another the debts that we often so hold against them. Even as the world itself drifts further and further into its adulterous love affair with this fake God of self. If so, then I want to remind you of the vows that you took as you joined this church, visibly speaking. See, in our Reformed tradition, when we join ourselves to a local Bible-believing church, we take what we know of as membership vows, a covenant before each other. And in the ARP, I know that one of our vows asks us the following question, in quote, in loving obedience, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of this church, promising to seek the peace, purity, and prosperity of this congregation as long as you are a member of it? Friend, if you have answered that question before as you've joined this church, and if you can still answer this question with a hearty yes, within your soul, then know that God will certainly provide us with the blessed promise that is afforded to us in the second part of our passage. All that flows out from his grace and peace that we have just read of, as we'll see now in verses three through five. See, God will indeed console us, his people, his whole church, by his love, even in the midst of the most dire afflictions, as the world bends the knee more and more to the false gods. But this truth that God will console us by his love is made manifest all the more when we are first and primarily united under the banner of his grace, his saving grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We'll experience this all the more when the church actually functions as the body of Christ. See, when our hearts are humbled by God's grace, first and foremost, and then enamored by his peace, We come to a place of not being able to even help restrain our praise and our affection toward this God. This is why the Apostle Paul begins this second section now in verse 3 with that word, blessed. But this is not the typical word for blessed in the original language. Now, for those of you who know me a little bit, uh, you might know that I am a huge fan of the Greek language. So if you don't mind, I'm actually going to take a little moment to teach you guys a little Greek, if that's okay. (laughs) But here in our passage, this word that is used for the word blessed is not the typical word for blessed in the Greek. It's not the word makarios, but rather the word eulogetos. Makarios usually has this this idea of being happy, being content in all things. But the word here is actually the idea of giving forth praise to someone, namely God. See, this word literally, eulogetos, means good word. It's where we get the English word eulogy from. And it literally, in our context, means praise. Praise be to God. See, we are, as this passage is about to tell us, we are to praise God or to literally speak good words of God at all times. In other words, God doesn't tell us to fake being happy. That's not the word he uses here in the midst of our afflictions. Rather, he tells us in the midst of these afflictions to praise him nonetheless. And so, friends, it's when we learn to praise him in all circumstances alike that we begin to experience the fullness of his comfort, which he promises to us here in this passage. And verse 3 tells us as much. See, let me show you for a moment, in regard to this Greek word, makarios versus eulogetos, which translation makes more sense to you? Happy is God who comforts us in all of our affliction? 
Or praise be to God who comforts us in all of our affliction. Praise be, right? See, certainly God himself is eternally blessed. He's eternally happy, truly. But that is not the point of this passage here. Rather, the point is that God is to be praised because he is the one who comforts us and knows exactly how to comfort us in every single one of our greatest afflictions. God is to be praised, or literally, again, spoken well of, precisely because he is so near to the brokenhearted and knows exactly how to comfort us in the way that we ourselves personally need to be comforted, even here in this very hour. And get this, our loving God doesn't just know, cognitively speaking, how to comfort us. He wants to, and he does comfort us in the midst of all things. He stands ready and eager to console our heavy hearts. And that is the essence of this passage here from verse 3 to verse 5, especially. Now, another little mini Greek lesson for you all. (laughs) The word for affliction here is so important for us to understand, but again, in the original language, the Greek, it has this connotation of being pressed down. It is a very force-filled word. And so to be afflicted, to be weighed down, is like trying to deadlift a weight that is far too much for you to handle. As that weight looms over your head, you know that this thing, 200 pounds or more, whatever it might be, has the power to crush you unless someone who is stronger than you lifts that burden off of your shoulders and carries it away on your behalf. Friends, this passage tells us that God alone is the one who can alleviate and truly lift the burdens and the weights of the deepest distresses and the anxieties that we face from our own shoulders. See, even as we face affliction, our hearts can yet courageously sing out the words of that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. But how does God's truth triumph through us, being a weak people that we are? We know from our text that it is only by the Holy Spirit, who is implicitly seen here in that word comfort. See, the Holy Spirit himself is known as our comforter and our helper by name, as Jesus once called him in John 14 and elsewhere. So think of it this way. The very God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who made all things and who upholds the universe by the word of his power, takes pleasure in helping you. You are not a burden to him. He longs to help you. And the burdens that you do struggle to shoulder, even now in this present moment, are not in any way too heavy for him to lift and bear for you. Friend, doesn't this truth make you feel relieved? Maybe even a little happy or blessed, if you will. See, biblically speaking, the word comfort here in our passage has very little to do with this idea of comfortability. Biblical comfort has everything rather to do with this idea of being consoled, consoled by the Holy Spirit. See, consolation, biblically speaking, is the deep, soul-satisfying peace that surpasses all understanding and yet attends us in the midst of the worst of times. It is the peace that the Holy Spirit grants to us in spite of our present circumstances. And this peace isn't a false sense of just detached obliviousness that pretends like all is well when in fact it is really not. Rather, God's consolation of our souls speaks the very powerful words of Jesus 
peace be still back into the exact places of our lacking, our doubting, our insecurities, and our genuine feelings of displacement in this broken, fallen world. Ironically enough, when we obsess over the goal of comfortability, as I know we often do, especially as Americans, admittedly, I know I do at least, we neglect the truest of all comforts, that being the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, his presence in the midst of all things. See, when we place our trust wrongly in earthly comforts, as we're often told to do in our own society, whether it be our bank accounts, our relationships, our governing authorities, our health, our families, our intellectual abilities even, we will often be crushed by those exact same things in this life. After all, our bodies will one day return back to the dust. But for us as believers, as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what gives us hope to press on. And so true comfort is really not about life's circumstances, but rather it is all about the application of God's grace by the Holy Spirit, which was secured for us by the redeeming work of Christ upon the cross. This same grace that has been measured out specifically for you and poured into your souls by the loving hand of the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. This God is not put off by your infirmities, your afflictions, the things that are weighing you down right now. Rather, as the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once said, there is indeed a sea of mercy to swallow the whole of them up, each and every one of your afflictions. See, in the midst of your frailty, your weakness, God does the exact opposite of withdrawing from you and being detested by whatever it is that you are facing in this life, whether it be the sin of others that you are facing or even your own sin in your own soul. Rather, our God draws closer to you in your time of need with his gentle, healing hand. Friends, when our souls become bereft, though, of the joy and the peace which we have known as believers, Our Father doesn't just stand by, twiddling his thumbs, waiting around for us to return one day. No, he is the God who pursues us. He is the one who rushes after us to extend forgiveness. He prepares for us a meal in advance of the finest of all foods. He places upon our figure a signet ring, calling us his beloved children by name. And he reminds us of his elective predetermined, undying commitment to us that was once for all time demonstrated by his son who went willfully to the cross for us. The same one who bore the wrath of the hell that we deserved, which was then placed upon his shoulders, not ours. And he was raised again to life, so giving you and me life in Jesus' name. Friends, this is why our last verse, verse 5, tells us this. It says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, too. See, in other words, each and every one of our afflictions as believers in Christ is never arbitrary. It's never a surprise to God. It's purposeful. It's designed to bring him glory and our ultimate good at the last 
And this is the divine redemptive purpose behind all of our sorrows that we face. It is this, the joy of true and lasting comfort. That true and lasting comfort that we will experience in glory. Salvation from sin and triumph over every single trial and tribulation along the way. Friends, is this gospel precious to you? Well, as we close, I have one final question for you before we head out. It is this. Will you, therefore, be known as a people who are united by God's grace and consoled by this saving love? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God the Father of mercies and comfort. We thank you, O Lord, that you know exactly how to tend to us in the moments of our weakness, the times when we feel completely destitute or alone or isolated. You come after us, Lord. We thank you, O Lord, that your word promises as much that as we suffer as Christians, we do not suffer in vain, but truly we share the sufferings of Christ that we follow in his footsteps and that these sufferings are not, uh, again, ambiguous or without purpose, but rather they are truly to sanctify us and to bind us closer to Christ himself, our Savior. So we pray, O Father, that as we um, continue on in worship, not just this morning, together with our fellow believers who are left and our right, with our families and our friends going forward throughout the week, that you would be the one who goes with us and binds us up by your love. May we see ourselves as a people who know your love and cannot help but speak of your love in all our ways. Will you bless our work, our relationships, O Lord, our lives, both together and alone. We pray, O God, for your blessing upon us as your church as you send us forth to go and to uh, proclaim your excellencies, O Lord, here in this town and beyond. So we pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.